Welcome to the Reading for Success podcast, brought to you by the Success League. This podcast focuses on books, articles, and other resources for customer success, provides an overview of each, and gives you an honest assessment of whether or not it's worth your time. Hi, my name is Kristen Hare, and I'm the host of Reading for Success. I'm also the CEO of the Success League, a boutique customer success consulting and training firm based in San Francisco. This week, I'm reviewing a new article, and we're starting a new book called How Women Rise. If you're one of the men in our audience, don't worry. How Women Rise provides a lot of great advice for everyone, and if you're a CS leader, it can help you understand how to best coach the women on your team. And speaking of men and women, today's article is Why Sexual Harassment Programs Backfire and What to Do About It by Frank Dobbin and Alexandra Kalev. This article was first published in the May and June 2020 issue of Harvard Business Review, and you can find it on their website, hbr.org. So as an overview of the article, it talks about the fact that after a significant increase in the awareness of sexual harassment during the 1970s and then some subsequent court rulings during the 1980s, by the 1990s, most organizations had put both training programs and grievance procedures in place to address the issue. However, the number of incidents of sexual harassment hasn't changed since the 1980s. The programs that were put in place really don't work. And the authors of this article researched 800 companies and over 8 million employees to try and uncover why and what can be done about it. This offers alternatives to both the current format of sexual harassment training programs and to formal grievance procedures and provides examples of how these alternatives are addressing sexual harassment much more successfully. So how is this related to customer success? I think any customer success leader would benefit from getting more comfortable with the topic of sexual harassment so that they can better address it on their team if it arises. And this article also addresses ways you can create a culture that helps to prevent sexual harassment in the first place. I think that CS leaders can also think about this article as a way to influence their human resources teams to move toward programs that more successfully prevent sexual harassment. And finally, for any CSM who has customers in the human resources space, this article would be a great share with your decision maker as a way to add value to that relationship. So what are my key takeaways in this article? One of my favorite quotes from the article is, start any training by telling a group of people that they are the problem and they'll get defensive. Once that happens, they are much less likely to want to be a part of the solution and instead they will resist. The authors go on to talk about how by focusing on forbidden behaviors, most sexual harassment training ends up with the men who are most likely to harass women actually becoming more accepting of such behavior after the training. And then to add insult to injury, when these men are found to be at fault after a grievance process, they're often quote unquote punished with more of the same training. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, that goes on to really support the author's advice on alternatives, which include bystander intervention and manager only training. Both of these alternatives start with the assumption that everyone is an ally and that together everyone can work to solve the problems of harassment by noticing and addressing it right when it happens. They provide solid examples of where these kinds of programs have worked in the past. The authors also offer up some interesting alternatives to formal grievance programs, which they show tend to punish the victim more than the perpetrator. 
and they get into this in a lot of depth. Um, I thought that the most interesting alternative to a formal grievance program was an ombuds office, which is essentially an external entity that works independently to resolve sexual harassment complaints. The advantage to these offices are that since they are independent, they're more likely to keep complaints confidential, and they're also able to report on hotspots inside a company so that managers can deal with the problem employees without forcing the victim to go through a formal complaint process and then face possible retaliation. And my last big takeaway was on the effectiveness of a company publishing their numbers on sexual harassment. This is having a very positive effect in the tech industry as companies publish data on diversity and pay and is driving organizations to change their cultures in these areas. The authors argue that publishing stats on harassment could have similar benefits, whether those are published internally and broken down by location and department or they're published externally. They point out that managers often have no idea how their own department is doing in this area because of privacy concerns, and that data could help support them in their efforts to eliminate sexual harassment on their own team. So is this article worth your time? I think this article is something that every CS leader and manager should read. It will provide ideas you can implement on your own team, and it may be something you'll wanna pass along to your HR group as well. CSMs may not get as much out of this article, but if you work in the HR space, you should read this and pass it along to clients if it makes sense. And of course, if you're the one facing sexual harassment at work, you should seek help, and this article may provide some ideas on how to do that in the most effective way. So today we're introducing our next book, which is one of my favorites. How Women Rise is written by Sally Helgeson and Marshall Goldsmith. And we're gonna be covering the introductory section, which is chapters one through three today. And then next week we'll start in on part two, which covers the chapters on the habits that keep women from reaching their goals. So next week we'll cover a, a lot of chapters, but they're pretty short, so don't worry about it, you got this. Um, what this section is about this week is um, really kind of an introduction to the book. Chapter one talks about the genesis of the book, some of the research and coaching work and personal experiences that drove Sally and Marshall to write this. Chapter two gets into um, challenges and what you should think about in terms of what success means to you and why men and women tend to get stuck in their careers for different reasons. And this chapter also gets into the topics of habits and identity and provides examples of how common habits tend to hold women back in their careers. Chapter three covers some of the reasons why women resist change and highlights the contrast between men and women in terms of resistance to change. I wanna note that the authors are very careful to state that not all men or women follow these patterns, but that these are simply the patterns that show up in their research and work. So that's what we're talking about today. So what do I agree with? I wanna call out right up front that I'm a big fan of this book and also the corresponding book that Marshall Goldsmith wrote before this one called, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. This first chapter tells the story of how, through coaching more women after his first book came out, Marshall started to notice that there were real differences between the men he coached, which is the bulk of his practice leading up to what got you here, and the women that he was adding to his roster. Sally, on the other hand, had built her practice around coaching women and was able to corroborate what he was seeing. I really love this chapter because it does a great job of setting the stage for their research, coaching work, and the context behind the rest of the book, and also tells the story of some of their personal experiences that led to their decision to collaborate on this. 
Uh, in the second chapter, the emphasis on women's tendency to pervert collaboration over competition really resonated with me. While I'm a very competitive person, when I'm managing a team that tends to surface as me being competitive with and on behalf of my team, rather than me being competitive as an individual. The authors highlighted this as a strength of many of the high performing women they've worked with, but balanced this with the idea that the downside of this tendency is self-sacrifice. They noted that self-sacrifice is at the root of many of the habits that hold women back. And I often see that in practice. I like the way that they balanced how both the positive and the negative sides of this trait surface in this chapter. The other part of chapter two that I really liked was the real life examples they provided of women who got stuck in their careers for different reasons. And in chapter three, they talk about how they got unstuck. This chapter made everything more practical for me. Chapter three was about resistance to change, and the authors contrasted a common male pattern in terms of resistance to change, that is denial, generalization, and attack, to a common female pattern, which is discouragement, consideration, and self-examination. And they talk about why both of these patterns tend to occur, how they differ, and where they offer advantages and disadvantages. I thought this was interesting, and I will say again that I thought the authors were very careful to say that not every man or woman follows these patterns. The most interesting part of chapter three was the exploration toward the end of the chapter on how stereotypes are compounded when you combine being a woman with racial or ethnic differences. This becomes stereotypes on stereotypes and can have a drastic impact on women who are Black, Latina, or fall into other ethnic or racial minorities. At this point in time, when systemic racism is being called out much more actively, I think this part of chapter three seemed especially relevant to me. What I disagree with in the book, I think the main thing I disagreed with in this section, and specifically in chapter two, is the idea that men place greater value on position and salary and are willing to sacrifice the actual experience of work, while women place a higher value on their enjoyment of work and will sacrifice position and salary to get that. I do agree generally with the women's side of the equation, but I would argue that this data is dated on the men's side of things. I coach a number of men who place a very high value on work-life balance and who are looking for not just position and salary from their role, but for fulfillment and contribution to the world. Many of them are actively planning their next role for an organization that is focused on driving global economic or environmental change. And I suspect this is a generational shift that started with Gen X, but has grown stronger as millennial and Gen Z men have come into the workforce. I also see a lot more family balance between men and women in these generations, which I think is helping to support this shift. I would love to see updated data as these generations move into high-level positions within their organizations because I suspect we will see a significant change in terms of not only what men value, but in how they respond to feedback as a result. So is this worth reading? I've already said that I love this book, so of course I think you should all read it. Uh, but for women who are CSMs, read this because it will help you avoid common pitfalls as you move toward leadership or other high-level positions. For women who are CS leaders or prospective leaders, these chapters will highlight areas you should consider as you move forward, and they will also encourage you to read the rest of the book, which of course I think you should do. Uh, and men who are CSMs, I think this book will help you support both the women in your life and your female peers. Read it for them. I have to say, I think that these first three chapters are most relevant to CS leaders who are men. You will take away ideas for yourself, ideas for your female peers, and ideas on how to coach your CSMs who are women. This will be a huge support as an ally. 
If you're reading along with me, next episode I'll be covering chapters 4 through 10. I know that seems like a lot of chapters, but they are short and sweet, so don't worry. If you don't already have this book, you can find it on Amazon. And since this is a brand new podcast, if you like it, please take a couple of minutes to rate it and subscribe. You can also email feedback and ideas to me at kristen at thesuccessleague.io. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join Reading for Success next time. Bye.